We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash lawless. Just go to Indeed.com slash lawless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed com slash lawless terms and conditions apply need to hire you need indeed cocking up nations league is upon us the u.s men's national team plays against cuba and canada competitive games that mean something the u.s should take care of cuba without a problem with or without any defections now canada well they've always seemed like an annoying younger brother but little bro is itching for a fight and now we'll see if puberty has finally kicked in Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lawless, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue colored glasses. As you heard, we'll be talking about the U.S. men's national team as they regroup for this Nations League in this international break. Our Mossy Makes the Case segment. Mossy's going to be talking about the incompetence and ineptitude of VAR down there in uh, South America. Our Ask Alexi segment, we'll be talking about the legend that is Jill Ellis in our back Three, we'll be talking about the MLS playoffs. They are upon us. But first, joining me as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how are you on this Monday morning? I am good. And folks, uh, if this week's pod seems abnormally well-produced, we've had just a, a massive upgrade in the producer chair. Lexi, we, why don't you tell folks? No, 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 no. Emily, em- speaking of the MLS playoffs are upon us, Emily is upon us, all right? It was as if... Somebody opened up the roof of our studio here, and a beautiful, bright, warm uh, light has enveloped everything that we do. It's so much more clarity in terms of the production of the show. So welcome uh, to the show over there. I was just going through uh, all of her. her, This is your life, uh, basically. She's lived an incredible life, um, and she was telling me all about the things she has done at Fox and all the wonderful things that she has done at Fox, and she's moved all over the the company here. I said, well, get ready to be underwhelmed. Now, if she were to perform well today and permanently replace Alex Dowd, what's the expression I taught you that would capture the situation well? Wally Pip. All right. Yep. So while Alex Dowd is off uh, suntanning himself on the beaches of Maui over there in Hawaii, Emily just comes right in and says, hey, this is an opportunity. And we may never look back. We may move on and say, Alex, thank you for your help. But if you'd like to take a few more weeks over there in Hawaii, then, uh, then go for it. Speaking of people tanning themselves and living the good life, I saw that documentary uh, of yours, that Maradona documentary over there on HBO, right? Is it HBO? Correct. Wow. Wow. It, uh, you didn't undersell it. You, you told me it was good, as everybody had it. They've been wonderful um, uh, critiques and reviews. It is, it, it is phenomenal. It is, it, you know, and as it should be for a guy that directed Senna, right? He did the Senna Correct, thing. And, yeah. and, and so it's, it's wonderful. And as we had mentioned before, it focuses on his Napoli days. It also brings up, you know, a point where 
we we sometimes r romanticize people and and this is on a, a a monday morning where over the past couple of days ginger baker the great drummer died and there's a wonderful documentary called uh, beware of mr baker and he was for lack of a a, a better term a, a a jerk and maradona you know I, he's he's when people ask me about between pele and maradona i always uh, go with maradona he is everything but he is incredibly flawed which it's it's why it makes him so interesting and obviously why it makes something like a movie or a documentary that that much more interesting but i think his flaws you can certainly see where they continued and in some cases started but now when you see him and this past weekend another video came out of him quote unquote dancing in the locker room after a win he he is still fascinating but i i I think this confirmed to me that he's just not a good guy necessarily. Yeah, again, I loved it. Uh, I thought it captured really well the complex that that region in Italy had. And, I mean, it was incredible, that scene where they show what the fans of opposing clubs were chanting yep. at, at Napoli supporters during games. And so what he meant to that city and how deified he was. So uh, I loved it. I thought it was focusing on the Napoli years was the right move because it would have been too much to try to capture in two hours. But I would be fascinated to, for somebody to do a deep dive on the Barcelona years, too, because th those were pretty fascinating as well. It was uh, so my my wife was watching it and I, I can't remember if I mentioned this, but um, she was watching the beginning of it and they show him getting tackled. And this was back before any player was protected in the way that they are protected now. And just the violence of the way those tackles came. And then when, when the whistle blew, then the more violence. It was just, it was complete mayhem at times for a guy that's playing for Barcelona. This generation looks at Barcelona with the Messi and stuff, and it, it's just this hallowed type of environment. And it, it looked like a Wild West type of scenario. That brawl against oh my Bilbao God. was Or you need the trainer and stuff like that? But it's interesting you say that he it confirmed to you what a jerk he is. I actually thought the documentary humanized him yeah. in a way that I came out of it liking him more, feeling sorry for him. I like him. I like him as a character. I like him as a absolutely flawed personality. I, I And that's one of the reasons why that moment where he scores one of the most beautiful goals in the World Cup, but also scores one of the most controversial and cheats in order to win, that perfectly shows who he is. I did like the way that they separated out the two between Diego and Maradona, and, and, he, and he was playing a part. I talk about the performance and, and the part and the character that we all play at different times, and I thought that was really well done. It does, though, make you appreciate how well Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo have handled their stardom because they deal with similar pressure that he did, and yet they've coped with it much better, obviously. Yeah, I mean, he, he, he lives a very wild and different type of life, has lived it, and to a certain extent continues to live it. So, uh, But I, I can't recommend it highly enough. We didn't spoil anything for you out there if you haven't seen it yet, so go out and check it out. It's, it's worth it. And as I said, whether you know anything about Maradona or not, or whether you care or know anything about soccer, I think it's one of those where people can appreciate it and, and uh, enjoy it. All right, we got a lot to talk about this week, Moss. You ready to light this candle? Yep. All right. As you know, each and every week, we kick the pot off with... Alexi Lawless's State of the Union. Yes, it's time for my State of the Union, where I look at a part of the game from an American perspective. And this week, it goes a little something like this. Kakagaf Nations League is upon us. This next week, the U.S. men's national team plays against Cuba and Canada, competitive games that mean something. The U.S. should take care of Cuba without a problem, with or without any defections. Now, Canada, well, they've always seemed like an annoying younger brother. 
But little bro is itching for a fight. And now we'll see if puberty has finally kicked in. We probably won't learn a whole lot new about Greg Berhalter's national team. After all, his task is to figure out ways to beat better teams in the U.S. But two intriguing stories surrounding this U.S. team this week. One involves a player who's with the team and one a player who's not. Christian Pulisic was called in and he may find it a welcome escape from his current challenging situation at Chelsea. He's back in his comfort zone. But is he carrying Chelsea baggage that's weighing him down or does a trip home unburden him and leave him free to soar? For better or worse, the U.S. will continue to rely upon him to lead the attack. And then there's Serginho Dest, the 18-year-old Ajax starter and dual national was not called in as he decides between Holland and the U.S. It seems the first couple of dates with the U.S. went well, but Holland can turn anyone's head. Now U.S. soccer is left wondering if they've done enough to win his heart or is a breakup coming. So the Burhalter project rolls on this week and we'll all be watching. Anything less than two wins against Cuba and Canada would raise eyebrows and ire and clicks on that Jesse Marsh speech. All right, Mossy, there's my uh, State of the Union for this week about this uh, U.S. men's national team. Any thoughts about uh, this roster or about these next couple of games against Cuba and Canada? Do you remember a guy named Jurgen Klinsmann? Vaguely, it rings a bell, yes. Uh, he gave an interview recently in which he poo-pooed the CONCACAF Nations League. He said the U.S. is not going to get better by facing CONCACAF opposition. They need to be playing more games against European and South American countries. He also criticized U.S. soccer for scheduling too many friendlies in the United States to make money. He said they need to be playing more games in Europe and South America. What did you make of all that? Well, he's not saying necessarily anything that people don't know, but understand that people know it all around the world. So when you say uh, you're going to be playing less games against Europe, what you're inferring is that you could be playing games against Europe, except that Europe is playing games against Europe, and so those dates aren't available to anybody. So it's not, as, it's not an either or. We're, we're either going to do this or we're not going to do this. So uh, yes, he's absolutely right in that, in that the U.S. would love to be playing as many dates as possible and as many games as possible against better competition. That's why I said in the State of the Union that it's sometimes difficult for us to judge this team under Greg Berhalter and therefore to judge Greg Berhalter because his mandate has been and the way that he has framed this from day one is about competing against better teams. And the only time that we have seen that happen in a competitive uh, sense has been against Mexico. And both of those games uh, we have lost. And so I agree with Jurgen that I would love to see the U.S. play it, but this is a this is a bigger challenge and problem. This isn't, once again, the Federation doing things. Now, his other point about the Federation doing things for business, we can certainly get into that. But last time I checked, when it came to the business and the expenses, in the history of U.S. soccer, never have we spent so much money on a team, and by the way, on a coach, than under Jurgen Klinsmann's reign. You're right. It's going to become increasingly difficult to schedule friendlies against European opponents because of the advent of the UEFA Nations League. And frankly, if every region adopts a Nations League, the whole concept of friendlies might go up in smoke. So then you're looking at tournaments as opportunities to face better opposition. He also said the U.S. should take part in every Copa America, even if it means blowing off gold cups. What do you make of that? I And I think I said this uh, before to you. I I got so much out of I played in two Copa Americas. And I know it was a different, it was a different time and the scheduling was different. But... If there are opportunities, even a couple of years ago when we hosted that Centenario Copa America, if there are opportunities, yes. Blowing off the Gold Cup, I don't think we in good conscience could do that as members of 
CONCACAF and, and leaders of CONCACAF to do that. It, it, I think there is a responsibility for us to help grow the confederation that we are in. And not playing in the biggest tournament, I don't think that that is CONCACAF a service. But if there are opportunities to play in Copa America, I think we need to move heaven and earth to get those opportunities uh, to do that. Absolutely. In that sense, I do agree. And there's times where I've scratched my head over the years where we have declined invitations to play in Copa America. And as I said, I know that there were situations where the players weren't going to get released. Whatever the, the, the 23 players that ultimately go down to represent the U.S. in a Copa America situation, they will benefit. They will benefit. We will benefit as a nation. We will benefit as a group. And they will benefit individually from doing something like that. Now, on Pulisic, he did come on this past weekend in Southampton and had yes. a nice assist. So maybe his situation will improve. But say it doesn't. I think how concerned U.S. fans are about it will depend in large degree to how much it affects his national team form. Sure. Now, even if he plays well in these two games, if he's buried on the bench at Chelsea, U.S. fans are still going to be upset about it because they want the U.S. to achieve greater prominence as a soccer nation, and part of that is having Americans succeed in Europe. They crave that validation, so the issue isn't going to go away entirely. But at least if he plays well in these two games, you won't have that double whammy of his Chelsea situation also affecting his U.S. form. But... If he plays well, or if he plays poorly, is it really relative to his Chelsea situation? I mean, is it, it once again, I, I've said this before, I, I, I've made t-shirts, hashtag it, do whatever, form is fallacy often, okay? In this situation, as soon as Christian Pulisic in these next couple of games hits a bad pass, well, that's because of the craziness that's going on at Chelsea, all right? Uh, and if he, if he plays well, it's that, oh, he's been able to leave that bag, baggage behind and, and, and go on. As you mentioned, the reason why we care about Christian Pulisic, obviously, it's, if you're American, it's because he's American, and there's that connection. We understand that. But it's all relative to the national team. So now when he comes back, and from a practical perspective, Greg Berhalter needs to build it around Christian Pulisic. Even in those games, the last games they played, it was obvious that he was the focus. We didn't have Josie Altidore, and all jo Josie got hurt this weekend. It's going to be interesting to see who else picks up the slack. And I was really interested to see if Josie Altidore coming in would change the dynamic of that team and take some of the, the, the onus off of Christian Pulisic. But... It looks like we're going to continue to ride Christian Pulisic, whether he's playing or not at Chelsea. It's interesting because he did play a lot at Chelsea leading up to the last international break. It was coming out of that break that his problems began. So these will be the first two games to sort of test whether it's going to have any effect. Um, on Serginio Dest, uh, how disappointed were you to not see his name on the list when the squad was announced? I don't care. I don't <laughs> care. I, I, and, and look, in the past, I've, I've been real kind of militant about it and said, if you don't feel something, if, it's, if this isn't your choice, then I don't want you. I don't want to be second choice. I want you either, when you get the decision, you, you go either way. And I've, I've come around to the, to the realization that while that's easy to say from my position, it's not so easy when you, when you have these two entities pulling at you. And they do, from a personal perspective, hold equal weight. But with or without Serginho Dest, that's that that's not whether we're going to be successful as a soccer nation would I like him to play yes but I would I want him to play because he wants to play and I get it that there's a there's a once again a practical part of this where he is balancing and trying to figure out his best course of action and this is a college recruiting type of scenario and the U.S. has done in this case maybe not in other cases but certainly in this case I think the U.S. has done everything that they possibly can and let the chips fall where they may. And if the chips fall for, uh, for Holland, for a guy that 
grew up there, all right, obviously has a, not just, not just a connection. I mean, he looks at himself as Dutch and the Dutch come calling. Okay. What do, I mean, we, we, we lost to one of the great nations in the world and one that, that speaks to him in, in a much more powerful way than maybe others. And so I'd be, I'd be okay with that. Interesting thing for me is one of the benefits of the Nations League is that it gives you more chances to cap tie players. But in this case, I do wonder if the U.S. had two friendlies this month, whether he would have accepted the call. And then it would have been another week surrounded by U.S. players and Greg Berhalter. It might have pushed him closer in that direction. The Nations League actually forced upon him a decision he wasn't ready to make yet. It's like you're dating a girl and it's possibly leading towards marriage, but you propose too soon and she says no. And then it makes it kind of weird. Can you propose again after that? So... Do we keep dating? What happens? <laughs> is this it? Is that, if it's, it's, so if you are a coach of a national team, right, and, and every coach of the national team nowadays especially has to deal with the dual national situation, <clears throat> do you think that you are doing your job? And I guess this is a, co- a question for the federation. Do you think you are doing your job if you cap them and therefore cap tie them? I mean, is that part of the strategy? Because you might cap, cap the person. It could be Sergio Jester or anybody else. And then we never use him again. But he can't go anywhere. So you've secured him for us. Is that does that make you feel a little dirty doing something like that, or is that just all's fair in love and soccer? No, all's fair in love and soccer. I think if that opportunity had presented itself, if he had accepted uh, this call, even if he was still a little bit iffy, if that opportunity was there, you play him, you make sure you get him tied down. At least that's how I would have handled it. But where's the line? I mean, shouldn't you do do that for anybody that could potentially develop into a good player? Well, if bring them in, cap time, and then they can only play for us. At least you're not going to lose them, so you're not going to look bad when they go play for Mexico or they go play for Holland or something like that. Yeah, I think that the uh, the larger decision is whether to call him up in the first place, and that's when you have to think about is this the type of guy that we really want representing us? Does he really want to be here? But once you've made that determination and you call him up, but why wouldn't you is- spread your chips all over? <laughs> I mean, the, 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 some, one of them's going to hit. But they can't hit if they have other options out there. You protect them all, <laughs> all right, by cap tying them. And then if one or two of them hit, great, right, they're right. ours because they can't go anywhere else. No, no, I see what you're saying. And that's, I mean, that- it's, it's an interesting. It's, it's, a, it, it's, it's, it's more of a, I guess it's a, a principle or, or moral type of question to, to the Federation. Is it right to do something like that to an individual? Now, you made a cheeky Jesse Marsh reference at the end of your State of the Union monologue. I do want to say something about Marsh. First of all, let me say this. Although there have been some signs for concern, I don't think Greg Berhalter's job should be in any trouble yet. Uh, But I know a lot of U.S. fans have Jesse Marsh uh, on their minds right now. Um, Although in the United States, the club versus country dynamic is very weighted towards country and the national team is seen as the pinnacle and the assumption is that any American coach, the ultimate would be to manage the U.S., I don't get that sense with Jesse Marsh. I'm sure at some point in his career he wants to manage the U.S., but for right now I think he's way more concerned with carving out a career in Europe, shattering that glass ceiling, being the first American coach to succeed in a top European league. And Salzburg is a pathway to a top European league. His predecessor at Salzburg, Marco Rosa, is right now in charge of Gladbach, who are leading the Bundesliga perennial top four contender. So if Jesse Marsh keeps doing well, he will be offered that level of job. And I think for the next few years that would be more enticing to him than the U.S. national team if he had a choice between a Gladbach-level club or the U.S., what do you think? So you look at Jesse Mars, who's a more cosmopolitan type I of— I do. A worldly man who thinks of himself not just in terms of the United States, but in terms of the world and the things that he can do. I do. If you're a U.S. fan waiting for Jesse Marsh to come to the rescue at some point in this cycle, I, I, I think you're going to be disappointed. I don't think he's thinking about the national team job until down the road. Jesse Marsh can be the right person for 
Salzburg, okay, and even beyond, okay? And also, Greg Berhalter can be the right person right now for the U.S. national team. That Jesse Marsh is doing well, and he's doing great, and we're all applauding as he should and be proud and excited about uh, what he's doing. But that doesn't mean that he should be the coach of the national team. What people are irritated of is that evidently he wasn't part of the process or he wasn't considered. Okay, fine. It's, it's okay. And it doesn't mean that Greg Berhalter, if Greg Berhalter had given the, been given the opportunities and the pathway that Jesse March has, or other U.S. coaches, couldn't do the exact same thing. Which is why when that, that locker room video came out, and by the way, it, it, it was wonderful performance art from Jesse. That's not a negative. I think it's... it's he played everybody uh, in, in, a, in a wonderful way. And for Jesse Marsh's brand, and this is about Jesse Marsh's brand, okay? This isn't just about, this isn't about the team, let's be honest. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew that there were cameras. He played to the cameras. And, but every, first off, every American player, I think every, every player has recognized those types of talks. It's rare that you actually listen to the coach. They, they're doing it much more for themselves and for a, a greater type of, of good. And, you know, the things that he was saying, all the, all the things that people throw out there that, are, that, that never, they don't really have any definition. Uh, and at times people are taken to task for using these things, spirit, fight, grit, all of these different things that can't be qualified or quanti quantified out there he was throwing out. This was, this was a rah-rah type of moment. It was really interesting to see how different people perceived it and, and how it was taken in the U.S., how it was taken overseas. I just looked at it as a, a good halftime speech from a guy who is trying to communicate with people that it's not necessarily his first language. That part for me was great when he was mixing and matching languages all over the place. That was great. But the content of it, I just thought it was a great, uh, a great performance. And his brand was elevated, even though people were critical of it at times. Jurgen Klopp was not too impressed by it. What did you make of those comments? Kiss my... <laughs> I mean, come on. Jurgen Klopp? Like... Why, do, why would Jurgen even say that? Just, you won the game, everything is, I mean, you're Jurgen Klopp, by the way. All right? There's, by, if anybody knows about performance, it's Jurgen Klopp, all right? But, but if he feels the, the sanctity of the locker room was violated, I mean, come on. It was, it was great. It was, it was wonderful to see. It was a peek behind the curtain, and that Jurgen Klopp doesn't want that peek to happen, fine. Then don't happen for you, for you. But if Jesse Marsh wants to do it, why do you got to come down on him? You're Jurgen Klopp. I, I think it made Jurgen Klopp look small, and I think it made Jurgen Klopp look um, sensitive, overly sensitive. And that's not something that I've ever associated with Jurgen Klopp. Mind your own business, Jurgen. I know he's going to get asked that question, but in that moment, yeah, it was great. It was wonderful to see. I would never do that, but it's okay. This conversation was bookended by two Jurgens, Klinsman and Klopp. I know. You, you always find a way to work uh, well, in And on this, uh, the, uh, you were headed to D.C., right? Uh, the uh, Cuba game this upcoming Friday US, is on uh, FS1. U.S.-Cuba on FS1, so I will be there once again. You know, I, I, I'll finish it with this. Um, it, it's so hard to continue to judge this team because it's not as if Cuba is going to high-pressure us and that whole playing out of the back is going to be on, uh, on display. We, we should have no problem going through through Cuba. Yes, it's a competitive game, but Cuba is not competitive with us. The Canada game, that will be interesting because they the way that they're talking and the way that they feel, we'll see if they've grown up. But I've seen that movie before where Canada says, this is it, we're finally back, we've, we've arrived. By the way, I remember speaking of Maradona in the 86 World Cup, I remember watching Canada in the 86 World Cup and just being, in a strange way, proud because the U.S. wasn't there, 
I grew up in, in Detroit and our proximity and connection with Canada was daily. Um, and so I, I saw Canada as my, my team, but I never, as I said in the stadium unit, ever look at Canada as someone that we should worry about or be competitive with. Famous last words, right? I said that about Trinidad and Tobago. <laughs> All right, Mossy, anything else? Nope. All right, moving on. Hello, people. It's Alexi here. More of the State of the Union podcast is on the way. But first, I wanted to tell you about a service every soccer fan needs to check out, Fox Soccer Match Pass. With Fox Soccer Match Pass, you can stream live and on-demand matches from Major League Soccer, the Bundesliga, international friendlies, and more, all on your favorite devices. And the best part, it's all ad-free, and you can cancel at any time. So check out foxsoccermatchpass.com and get started with a free seven-day trial today. Now back to the show. Mossy makes the case. Mossy makes the case. Mossy, what are you casing for this week? My case is that South America is even behind Europe when it comes to VAR. <gasps> How dare you? For all the controversy that still surrounds video review, at least in Europe, the disrupting the flow of the game argument has largely subsided. The process is quick enough that we're really only debating the decisions themselves. Well, anyone who watched the Copa Libertadores semifinals last week knows in South America that is not the case. In fact, they've come up with an ingenious way to make you not complain about decisions. Every review takes so damn long that you find yourself thinking, I don't even care what the call is anymore. Just restart the game. It is unbelievable how long these reviews are taking, and it affects matches. In the Gremio Flamengo first leg, Flamengo came out on fire. The first 20, 25 minutes, they played some of the best football I've seen a Brazilian club play in a big match in a long time. But what happened? They found the back of the net twice in a short span. Both were ruled out by VAR. The two reviews combined took like six or seven minutes. And when the match restarted, Flamengo weren't the same team. It took the wind out of their sails. It took the air out of the match. The last 20 minutes of the half were very flat. The match didn't come to life again until the second half. That is unacceptable. There's no reason for referees to be running over uh, to the monitor as often as they do. But if they're going to run over there, that decision has to be made quicker. Look. We have enough issues with VAR, and God knows South America has enough issues in terms of competing with Europe for eyeballs. The players aren't as good. The football isn't as good. But this is something they have to figure out. No soccer match should ever feel like the last two minutes of a basketball game. Oh, wow, Masi. Wow, Masi. Oh, I have so many questions. All right. First and foremost, I just want to make uh, speak in, in the uh, essence of, of, of clarity here. When you are talking about this, I've never known you to be someone who pulls their punches. But what I hear you saying here, Mossy, is that, and please correct me if I'm wrong. I, I, I demand that you correct me if I'm wrong. Are you saying that South Americans are dumb, that they are inept, that they, have, they don't have the mental capability to grasp the type of technology and to use that type of technology in an efficient way? Uh, on the record, no, that is not <laughs> Well, uh, my, my, my question then to you uh, is this. What do you attribute to this to? Why, why can the rest of the world do it? And, and to be fair, some countries and, and leagues and, and uh, tournaments are further along in what they're doing. But at this point, everybody understands kind of how VAR works. Why, is it, why are they lagging so far behind? I don't know. It's, it's, uh, it's newer in South America. It took longer to implement, so maybe that's part of it. But, but you're right. They should have figured it out better by now. Um, you know, by the way, I mentioned uh, Flamengo had two goals ruled out in the first half. Um, for VAR. One of them was for one of those bang-bang offside decisions that are generating so much controversy. I watched the post-game press conference and the Grêmio coach, uh, Renato Gaúcho, in defending the decision, said in Portuguese, não existe mulher um pouco grávida. Do you know what that translates to No, I don't, but, but I'm, I'm excited to hear this. A woman can't be a little pregnant. No! If that doesn't show you the reach of this podcast, he's clearly been listening. 
and there you go. Wow, we are we are multilingual now in terms of this. God, we should have copyrighted that. So we trademark. Now I know the hand wringing over those tight offsides decisions drives you crazy. I saw you fighting with Arlo White about it on Twitter the other day. You were <laughs> contemplating the State of the Union about it. So I'll give you a chance here to once again state your case regarding those plays. It's just you know once again it, at some point we always have to make a line and. You and others seem to, you know, have this irritation that stems out of the fact that somebody has made a line, and yet the answer, but you'll never say this, is to just make another line. <laughs> and so, no matter what, when a video shows that you are that, that 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 the line is there, and you are this side or that side or equal, then where do we where do we go from there? Other than to get rid of the line. Look, this genie is out of the bottle. It's not going back. Nothing, nothing's that train has left the station, whatever phrase you want to use out there, it is gone. We're not putting the something back into the whatever. You know, you know what I'm thinking about there. But it, this is this is ridiculous at this time. I, I, I am gonna learn how to say it in, how do you say it in Portuguese again? We'll say it, say it, say it again. And no existe mulher um pouco grávida. No existe mulher um pouco grávida. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, you cannot be a little pregnant. All right, you either are or you aren't, and that's what VAR is about. That people don't like it, I'm sorry. Now, to your other point about speeding it up and making it more efficient, there are things that you can do, but you're only as good as the people that are operating this technology. I don't think that it's a case, and I know you're, I don't think you're saying that it's a case of different technology or the wrong technology. It's just the implementation of that technology and the speed and efficiency in which they do it is causing what a lot of people predicted actually when it came to VAR. It's causing the games to slow down. It's causing those moments that historically we have associated with moments of glory or, or moments of despair or whatever to be elongated or to have multiple moments within that. I argue that that's still okay because there is that drama and that, um, uh, that period now where the, the judgment is, is being contemplated and then that payoff and release that happens. Now, VAR was a big theme in both semifinals. In the River-Boca game, you almost had what I've always said is the nightmare VAR scenario. Three minutes in, River had a penalty shot, which was waved away, but it was clearly a play that merited review. So you knew the referee was just waiting for a stoppage in play so he can go back and look at it. But instead, Bro Boca broke the other way and almost scored. They had a shot from inside the River box, which Armani saved. Shortly thereafter, the ball went out of bounds. He took a look at that penalty and ruled it was a penalty. Penalty. Roll it back. Uh, and look, it's bad enough you have the penalty decision, which Boca was furious about. But can you imagine if in awarding that penalty, he also had to wipe off a Boca goal? <laughs> it would have Not been unbelievable. Not only can I imagine it, we've, been, we've talked about that. <laughs> yes, it's been imagined because there are people that are smart, okay, that have been predicting this and saying, look, if this happens, we are going to roll it back because it was ill-gotten gains ultimately that resulted in, in, that, in that goal. And when you say when it comes to VAR, because oh, I get this, I, I hear this a lot. Now all we're talking about is VR, VAR after the game. Look, after every sports match, we're talking about calls, made calls, missed calls. We're talking about calls that in the past, the video would then, sh would then show it. Would you rather be discussing it there where the video comes back and says, ah, they got that one uh, wrong because the, the, the TV shows us that it was wrong. So no matter what, we're going to be discussing this thing. This is what happens. Now, Conrad Ball always has these conspiracy theories. So to show that uh, everything was above board, they actually released the audio of the referee interacting with the VAR officials as he was watching that play on the monitor, which was fascinating to see I how they that. came upon that decision. That. Is that something you'd like to see all leagues do? So there's, there, is a, uh, there is a perfect example of the fact that they aren't dumb okay as a matter of fact they might be that much ahead of us they might already be around the corner that we we think that they're behind so that's kind of stuff 
I love that because it gives you a, a glimpse into what's happening. And once again, we can argue about that, but arguing and debating is what we do. It, it's, it's our lifeblood, so I, the more of that, the better. But it does uh, provide a level of transparency and understanding and clarity when it comes to what they're doing, the likes of which we haven't seen. Because there's still this confusion, even when they're doing it at the top level, there's still this confusion as to what it's, what's really happening. And I think from, if I was a referee at a high level, I would want that come out, coming out, which is why I would want referees to be interviewed. I want that people to understand why I made this decision or why we as referees made this decision in that moment. You might not agree with it, ultimately, if it's a subjective type of thing, if it's, if it's not, then it is or it isn't, once again, the, the, the pregnancy uh, rule there. But I want you to understand why we made it. And we didn't just you know, sit back with a, a smoke and a coffee and say, oh, whatever, uh, you know, it might be off, it might not, and, and make it. You know, these, these men and women are working hard to get this thing right. And the more that you can do to show that they are doing the work to get it right, I think the better off you're going to be. Very quickly on the two semifinals. So River won 2-0. Uh, the big story with Boca, they obviously uh, don't have their manager from last year. He's the current manager of the LA Galaxy. Um, they uh, made an interesting choice to replace him. They, they hired this bloke named Gustavo Alfaro, whose whole career has been built on getting smaller clubs to punch above their weight. So he's been a bit of an odd fit at Boca. He's a defensive, pragmatic Simeone type. Results have been good. They're on top of the Argentinian League. They're in the semifinals of the Copa Libertadores. They don't concede very many goals. But Boca fans have been struggling all year with this thing of a manager that gets good results but plays a style we don't like and trying to reconcile those two things. And the one issue with those managers is they don't have a plan B. He played a very defensive lineup against River. He was aiming for a nil-nil. They concede, like I said, a very contested penalty in the opening minutes. And they were completely out of their element trying to chase the game. Uh, the first half was pretty even, but the second half, River was much better. They got a second. They should have gotten more. But two ought to be enough because this Boca team is not equipped to turn around the 2-0. If River get one at La Bombonera, Boca would need four. So I think River have a foot and a half in the semis. The other one, Gremio Flamengo, ended 1-1, so that's wide open. But Flamengo showed themselves to be clearly the superior team. Now, everybody, including myself, was hyping this up as this incredible spectacle. Two giants that play attractive football. Uh, and it's interesting, the Brazilian media, including guys like Tim Vickery, who I respect, are still peddling this notion that it was some great game. It wasn't. It was a good game, but a great game requires two teams playing at a high level. Grêmio had like 10 or 15 minutes in the second half in which they played well. The rest of the match, they were awful. The first half, they were pathetic, frankly. Give Flamengo credit. They pressed really well, but Grêmio should have handled it better. For a team that normally plays fluid possession, to spend 45 minutes at home hoofing the ball up the field, not creating a single half chance was embarrassing. So I don't know how you have a great game if, if one of the teams, their first half performance was embarrassing. So that doesn't compute with me. But it ended 1-1. Second legs in two weeks' time at La Bombonera in the Maracana, and uh, I can't wait. We'll revisit all this then. The, re the reason why and how you can have a good game or a great game like that is if you are a romantic, all right? <laughs> and obviously, you're not a romantic, which my final question to you will be, I didn't hear a word you said, by the way, right. uh, about all that stuff. It sounded awesome, um, at least from afar here. Uh, what Can you be a romantic if you, if you have a plan B? Uh, you can, but uh, Grêmio, that did not constitute a plan B. That was a team just uh, being taken completely out of their game and not knowing what to do with themselves. And they spent 45 minutes, like I said, literally just hoofing the ball up the field back to Flamengo and I, holding I, on for dear I life. I disagree with you. We will end it here. I disagree with you. I don't think that you can be a true romantic if you have a plan B. It, it's all or nothing. That's where the romance lies. All right. Anything else, Mossy? Nope. That's all right. It. Moving on. All right, it's time for... 
Ask Alexi. Ask Alexi, you use that hashtag Ask Alexi out there on all the uh, social media platforms. You send us some questions and comments and concerns, and we pick two or three of them, and uh, we read them. Actually, we pick three of them. Uh, I always say two or three, but we do pick three. Uh, Mossy, what do the people want to know this week? First up, at, how do you think Joe Ellis would do coaching in the men's game? Maybe not at the national level, but MLS or USL, or is a men's game a whole different animal? Is the men's game a whole different animal? Uh, no, it is not a whole different animal from a coaching perspective. From a playing perspective, yes. But from a coaching perspective, it's, it's all relative. So all of the theory and the application of that theory from a coaching uh, perspective would apply. A and so I have no doubt that she would have the acumen and the ability to implement a plan and coach a men's team at, at any level, to be quite honest, from national team to club team or anything like that. The question is always going to be, from a managerial perspective, would she have the ability to impact the players in a positive way on a continual basis? Would they tune her out? Because for whatever reason, they, they like her, they don't like her, she's a woman, um, and that's really what we're talking about and debating here as to whether she can do it. I do think that, and it's got to be the right situation. First off, you have to have complete buy-in from the top down. And no matter who does it, if somebody were to do it, yes, there is an element of uh, you are sending a message and you are using somebody in the best way possible if you truly believe that this is the right thing to do. If, if you are hiring Jill Ellis because you believe that she is the best person for the job, that's great. If you are hiring her simply to make a statement and you are bypassing others that are better just to have a, a, a female coach, I think that's a recipe for disaster, okay? But there has to be an element and a pride if you ultimately choose Jill Ellis that, hey, we're gonna do something different here and we're gonna take plenty of, uh, uh, of criticism along the way, um, but we are gonna do everything in our power to make sure from top down that this is going to work. And so the types of players that you have, the way that uh, the, uh, the structure is of that organization, all of that has to come into play. So that's a long way of saying that yes, I think Jill Ellis, as pl plenty of female coaches out there, would have success. But if they didn't have success, it wouldn't necessarily be because they were female, just because they weren't good enough at that point for that team, which applies to men and women in that position. But I also would say with this caveat, it could be at times because of the relationship and the bad situation that in this case, we're talking about Jill Ellis, but any female that's put in that situation was put in to begin with. And so I just think it requires a whole lot of cooperation, which means it requires a really unique uh, circumstance and situation and unique people surrounding her in that moment. Uh, former State of the Union producer Alex Dowd uh, <laughs> said I should ask you about Jill Ellis dyeing her hair red and taking your job. Uh, well, we, we talked to Jill Ellis in the penultimate game of her career um, with the national team. She just finished up this, this weekend going out on top, dropping a mic. And she came over and she, uh, I asked her, what are you going to do? And she said, well, 
you know, I'm just going to dye my hair, hair red and take your job. Well, Jill, uh, you can you can get in line, all right, and you can pry it from my cold dead hands. Okay, <laughs> okay. Look, I, I would love to. I'm actually really interested to see what Jill Ellis does end up doing. Is it a coaching situation? Is it is it something completely different? And as I said before, she is going out on top, a legend. And I don't think that Jill Ellis at times gets enough credit for what she did. She came in and did something that hadn't been done in 16 years. And then she doubled down and did it again four years later. Uh, as I said, dropped the mic and then moved on. And at times the accusation was that she just threw out the ball or that the team won in spite of her. Well, when you're coaching the best team in the world, that's always going to be a part. And I think as time goes by, both the women that she coached and I think the general population is going to gain a greater appreciation for what she did in the moment. I don't even think that we, at this moment, appreciate uh, and credit her enough for, uh, for what she did. And that's why I say that I think she would have no problem uh, doing anything in life, to be quite honest, whether it's coaching or whether it's taking my job. But once again, I'm not going down without a fight. And as I said, there's so many people out there anyway at this point. I, I, she might not go to the back of the line, but maybe in the middle, given that she's Joe Ellis. Does that take your job on TV or on this podcast? Oh, wow. Clarify that. Uh, next up, at Gotham Gator 1. What has a bigger impact on a game, a small pitch like Yankee Stadium or artificial turf like Seattle, Atlanta, Portland, New England, etc.? It's a great, great question. Normally I don't say hey, that's a great question because that's a little trick that people do to make people feel better uh, before they tell them something that either they don't want to hear. Um, it's not in this case, but that is a great question because I'm stalling for time here. Uh, no, I would think that I think from a oh gosh, it's hard. I th yeah, I think that it's the uh, the turf. I think the turf, the way it is, it's gotten a whole lot better. It's not the the asphalt with a small layer of green carpet that I used to play on back in the 1900s. It's gotten so much better and so much. Uh, but it's still not grass. And I still think it fundamentally changes the way the game is played and the way, and the way that we view it and the bounce of the ball and the roll, uh, roll of the ball. So I think that has a bigger impact on the game than the confines of Yankee Stadium. If you look at NYCFC, they've, they've figured it out. Is it jarring if you haven't played there or if you don't play there on a continual basis? Yes. But you, you ultimately figure it, figure it out. I just think that the... It, but in that case, you have a home team that is much more used to doing it. And I suppose you do with, with, with turf too. But I'd still, I still think that the synthetic surfaces that we play on now change the game much more than a quirky, strange type of setup when it comes to something like Yankee Stadium. And finally, at Corvette underscore junior, when someone plays for the U.S. men's national team, do they get to keep the jersey? The answer is yes. Um, you get to keep the jersey as a, as a memento because the fact is you don't know if you're ever going to be there again. And so I was not sentimental about my jerseys. Uh, there are many that I played with and that have every jersey either that they played with, but what you usually do is you trade with somebody on the other team. I would always do that trade um, and for some very big names, and then I would give that jersey to our uh, our chiropractor, uh, George Billauer is his name, who has a wonderful collection of international jerseys over the years that I gave to him because it didn't, uh, in the moment and now as a older man, I don't 
feel the nostalgia that that would be summoned up by having those jerseys around. I don't I don't regret that decision. I don't regret the fact that I don't have those jerseys. I look, I have plenty of jerseys at home, but those international games, uh, you would usually have two jerseys. One, if you wanted to keep for yourself, you would keep uh, of your own, and then one that you traded at the end of the game, and then you had that other person's jersey. One of the nicest gifts I've ever gotten, uh, Warren Barton played in an England-Brazil game at Wembley in 1995, a tournament called the Umbro Cup, and he swapped jerseys with Edmundo, the animal, at the final whistle, one of my favorite players, and he gave me that jersey. So I have a game-worn Edmundo. Uh, So here's my question. Serginho Des does have a U.S. jersey at his house right now? He does. Now, is it in the garbage? Is it they use it now to wash his face after he— How dare you? Dare you? You would never use a, a U.S. men's national team or women's national team or national team jersey in general to do anything like that. Yeah, I mean, it's it. <laughs> it, it, it I, I know. There, I, I believe me. Like uh, like you said, there are there are players that are bound and determined to to get that, and they have rooms where they have all of their jerseys up. And it, I I was there. I don't need a jersey to remind me of that. It doesn't make me better than anybody. It's just the way that I went about it. And once again, I don't. I don't regret it at this point not having uh, not having those jerseys. Uh, if Serginho Dest does have jerseys, it it looks like if it, if he goes the way of Holland, that he'll only have a couple of them. <laughs> what else, Masi? That is it. That's it. All right. Uh, as always, use that hashtag Ask Alexi when you are sending those questions and comments out on the uh, Twitter and the Facebook and all the other uh, platforms out uh, out there. Platforms every single day. There's always new platforms. You ever heard of this uh, TikTok thing? Is this, a, is this a real thing? Oh, my goodness. All right. Well, we got to get on uh, get on that, too. Well, but use the hashtag. I think you can use hashtags there, too. I don't know. Anyway, uh, whatever you're using to communicate with uh, your fellow human beings out there, when I say communicate, I don't really mean communicate face to face because we don't do that anymore. But if you were to communicate face to face with me, you would preface the conversation that we had with hashtag Ask Alexi if you see me walking down the street. So do that, too. But regardless, use that hashtag and we will pick uh, questions out as we just did. All right, moving on. The back three. All right, it's time for the uh, back three when we look at some big stories and games and moments out there. Mossy, what do we have in our back three for this week? All right, we begin in England and the issues at Tottenham. Last week, they suffered a 7-2 Champions League defeat to Bayern Munich. And then this past weekend, a 3-0 loss to Brighton. They've won just three of 11 games this season. So a few months after contesting a Champions League final, they are now in something of a crisis. Uh, two schools of thought here. Uh, this is Pochettino's sixth season in charge, which in modern football is an eternity. He's yep. a very intense guy. So there are people that think we might have reached the end of the road here and, and these, they need to part ways, Pochettino and Tottenham. Then there are others that say that's crazy. It's just a blip. He'll figure it out. And he's bought so much currency with how great a job he's done the last five seasons that to even talk about getting rid of him is ridiculous. Where do you land on all that? Arrivederci. Ciao. Goodbye. Tschüss. Uh, Auf Wiedersehen. Uh, uh, what, what's, what, what else we got? What, are, what, are, what other uh, languages you got? Hasta la vista. You know, adios. Uh, yes, it's, I think it's run its course. And I don't feel bad about saying that uh, because, you know, as we said, that we, sometimes we make, make light and we make sport of firing. And somebody's losing their job. It should never be something that's taken lightly or something that you laugh about. But we know that Poch is going to fall up, okay? He's going he's gonna to go on to something better because he's that valuable. So then you say, well, why don't you keep him? Well, you don't keep him because it's, it is 
it is time for a change. It's gotten stale. You, you, you got to move on. It was interesting. I don't know if it's interesting, but I, I think it's interesting, and I have the microphone, so I'm going to say it. Uh, it, was, uh, it was interesting that this past weekend when, <laughs> when they were losing, it was in the middle of the night because I was out because I was doing Bundesliga, I know, and I texted our friend uh, Allie Wagner, who was a huge Spurs fan, and you know, she, she was not happy with me for texting her at that moment, but um, you know, she thinks about this, uh, this team, and she's a huge fan analytical way and obviously an emotional way and she 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 believes in in potch now she has a relationship with him in terms of they've talked before so i think that uh, is getting in the way of her seeing clearly right now i, I just think that it's it's time to make uh, make a change and he's going to be fine he's going to go on to bigger and better things um, but i think that this has has run its course as i as i said and it's done one larger issue for me at that club is we've talked about on this podcast how uh, in England generally they're trying to move away from giving the manager complete power right. in terms of who they buy, who they sell, who they give contract extensions to, for how long. Uh, they want to create a structure with a sporting director functioning like a general manager does in this country. Um, there are two managers that I think transcend that, Klopp and Pep, that still have complete control at their clubs. I don't think at those clubs they change the color of the bathroom walls without consulting those two guys. And I think Pochettino feels like he's earned that as well at Tottenham, but he's not getting it. Uh, instead, Tottenham are going the way, similar to United, Chelsea, and Arsenal, of giving the manager less say over transfers. And so they always seem com to come out of these transfer windows with tension because everybody wasn't quite on the same page as far as whatever business they conducted. And so I think that's a larger issue they have to sort out there. I, I know I know that there is this sentiment, and, and rightly so, for coaches that if you want me to cook, you got to let me go buy the ingredients. And I get that. But if I was a coach or a manager in today's game and this type of uh, mothership ha hovering over is making those decisions, I would use it to my advantage. I would come in and I would say, I am just cooking, okay? And I have been given the ingredients. And I'm going to make the best that I possibly can. But I would also point out who the individuals are that are ultimately making these decisions and make sure that everybody understood that they're making the decisions, all right? It doesn't absolve me from responsibility. But beforehand, I want to know what the expectations are. And I don't want you just to tell me in some boardroom. I want you to go out there and say, look, this is the ingredients. We are the ones that decided who the ingredients was, and we are the ones that went and shopped for it, and we are the ones that are bringing it to the kitchen. And we are getting you as a chef to make the best possible whatever meal, meal it is. And this is what we expect. Give me a level of what you expect. Because behind closed doors, they are doing that. When coaches and managers sit down, they are saying, what do you expect from this? What are your expectations? But you got to make that public. And you got to put it on them. And it doesn't mean that you're not responsible if you don't live up to it. But I just think there's got to be a lot more understanding if you have these people that sometimes are in these strange, nebulous type of uh, worlds in existence where we don't really know what they're doing or how much they're doing. No. If you got that, great. Klopp. And Pep, it is all on them. And that's the way that they like it. But we also know that that's, that's going, going away. Let me ask you this. You said Pochettino is going to fall up. Yeah. Um, United are an absolute disaster. Solskjaer is on his last legs there. Last season, that decision was framed as do they give Solskjaer the job or pursue Pochettino? They obviously opted for Solskjaer. Uh, this might seem callous, but if Pochettino were to leave Tottenham, if you're United, do you fire Solskjaer right away and grab Pochettino before somebody else does? Oh, no, you fire 
uh, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, whether Regardless. Poch gets fired. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but, if, but if Poch is available, yeah, you go out and get him. It's an upgrade. And that's, that's my, only, uh, my only debate with myself would be you never fire a coach unless you think you have something better coming in. And do you have somebody better from a Tottenham perspective? Uh, I, I don't know. But from a Manchester United perspective, boom. We already got somebody better. Boom. He's in. And one last thing on England. Uh, Liverpool won this weekend. Uh, they beat Leicester on a late penalty, and City lost at home to Wolves. So it is now an eight-point gap between those two. I, I was pretty bullish going into the season that Liverpool were going to win it. I thought it was their year. And now I'm wondering if it's even going to be close. Uh, I, I did think, you know, last season it went down to the wire. City had 98 points, Liverpool had 97. I thought if, if, there, if one of those two teams was going to be able to maintain that level this season, it was going to be Liverpool. And if one was going to drop off, it was going to be City. So, so far I'm looking pretty good on that. I mean, do, do you think it's much too early to start talking in these terms? Or could you see a scenario where Liverpool just cruised to the title this season? I could only see it because there's precedent. Last season they were down by nine points, right? And ultimately, uh, Liverpool lost it, right? So you, you could see City coming back. and, and Only win. because it happened last right, season. Right, right. Uh, but no, I don't see it. I don't see it happening. I think yeah, it's done. So. We are what? October 7th of 2019. Uh, what? A, a month, two, two months into the season of 2019-20 of the English Premier League. Do they still call it that? It's English Premier League, right? Or just the Premier League. Whatever. The EPL. I'm calling it the EPL. And it's over. Done and dusted. All right. They should they should have the, uh, you know, the walk where they they, they walk of, uh, of tribute uh, where they, they walk out and when when the uh, uh, when the league title, they should just do it right now. Every time that Liverpool plays, the opposition should just form that <laughs> corridor of honor and they should walk out because it's then. They, no, I don't think them. I don't think it happening two years in a row where they're going to give up. It's eight points now, I think you said eight points. Yeah, yeah I think it's, it's done, which uh, sucks. I don't want that. I want it to go down. But who knows? Uh, next up, there was a massive game in Italy this weekend, the Derby d'Italia. Uh, Juventus defeated Inter 2-1 to at the San Siro. Very quickly on the game, then I want to talk about the larger implications of the result. Uh, it was a good game, uh, pretty even for the first 30 minutes. Uh, once Sensi, very good midfielder, came off injured for Inter, they were never the same. I thought Juve was the better team after that, so ultimately I thought they deserved the three points. Uh, in, uh, Juve, by the way, have incredible depth this season, almost too much. The squad is unwieldy. When I was in Italy this summer, all the talk was about how they had to sell a lot of players. They weren't able to sell as many as they wanted, so Sadi has this crazy squad to manage, but it does mean they always have good options off the bench. Higuain came on and scored a late winner. Uh, the three goals, by the way, were all scored by Argentines. Dybala and Higuain for Juve, and then Lautaro Martinez, this excellent young striker, converted a penalty for Inter. So it goes to show you, whatever their troubles at the international level, the attacking talent that that nation produces, Argentina, is amazing. Um, but the, here's the larger issue. We deal with this uh, with the Bundesliga as well, where Bayern have won seven in a row. Yep. We're all thirsting for something different. And so we try to talk ourselves into the Leipzigs and the Dortmunds at the beginning of the year. And I know you've, you've sort of rolled your eyes at all the Leipzig and Dortmund hype, and you're, you kind of take the tact of, I'll believe it when I see it. And, and, and the same thing is sort of happening in Italy, where Juve have won eight in a row, and you kind of want something different. And Inter, they hired Antonio Conte this summer, who ironically is the manager that got the whole Juve run started. They made some very good signings. You start the season, they rip off six straight wins. They were in first place. Uh, Juve looking a little wobbly. Juve go in there. So from a neutral's perspective, this was a chance for Inter to, to go out, beat Juventus, widen their lead, really make a statement that we're for real. We're going to challenge you for the title. We could win it. And instead, Juve go in there and beat them, and they vault into first place. And 
and you, I hate to say it, you come out of it thinking, eh, it's going to be Juve again. Do you think in our desire for something different, we sometimes overrate these uh, second-tier teams and try to talk ourselves into them too much? I think we do, and in doing so, I think we motivate the others. <laughs> in, in, in a time where it's – I mean, it is hard to do what some of these teams are doing. It, Relative. I mean, look, if you have the best players and the most money and all that kind of stuff, you're hedging your bets. But still, it's hard in the sense that from a coaching perspective, managing perspective, you've got to motivate players that have done it so many times. And how do you continue to churn that motivation out? Well, sometimes you get something from heaven. The soccer gods smile upon you. And when other people are hyping up and talking about other teams – whether, wherever, whatever place that's coming from, and it could be coming a place where we just want it, and you're absolutely right. We, we want that type of competition. In, in essence, what you're doing is you're creating a different situation than the, than the previous year, and you are giving them something to grab onto because they read everything. They see everything. Players and, and coaches read and see everything. So I'm not saying don't do it because it's, it's human nature where you're going to do it, and we're, like you said, we've done it in the Bundesliga. We, we want that competition because it gets boring each and every year when the same teams win year after year after year. But in hyping up the competition, we are doing things that could poke the bear, if you will. I keep thinking about uh, Grant Wall because he did a monologue on his Who podcast. Who doesn't think about Grant Wall which, in their spare time? Uh, that monologue he does is such a State of the Union ripoff. <laughs> that, that, that's a whole other conversation. Um, but he did a monologue, and, and, and the overall point he raised was very valid about the top heaviness and predictability of European leagues. As we mentioned, Bayern have won seven in a row. Juve have won eight in a row. PSG have won six out of seven. Barcelona and Real Madrid have combined to win 14 in the last 15. So there's obviously – uh, a conversation there to be had. Now, he, he suggested a salary cap. Whether that's the right solution, who knows. But uh, the mistake Grant made is he overplayed the argument. He made it seem where it's so predictable that it's a given this season that the five teams that won the top leagues in Europe last season are going to win them again. And he's already going to be wrong, I think, with Liverpool. And I'm wondering if there's any other ones that he's going to be wrong about. Bayern are not in first place right now. Barcelona are not in first place right now. Juve and PSG are. But, you know, like I said, Juve weren't going into this week and they just leapfrogged into first. So we'll have to keep an eye on that. But you know the way people are. If a couple of those flip and the same team doesn't win it, they're going to act like it completely destroys Grant's argument when it, it, it doesn't because, it doesn't, you know, no. Real Madrid winning La Liga instead of Barcelona is hardly a triumph of parody. Right. I mean, there's still, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a, so, I mean, there's, there's still a conversation to be had there about a salary cap and parody and top heaviness and all that. So I, I just think Grant uh, took the wrong tack there. And Ian Joy called him on it. They made a bet on it. So I, I've been sort of keeping an eye on that uh, wow, so far. Nice. It's going to be interesting it. to see who gets the last I laugh there it. between two of our good friends in the business. I love intermedia fighting. It's <laughs> awesome. Um, and we'll end on this. Uh, the MLS regular season is in the books. It's in the books. It's in the books. As, as I mentioned last week on the show, uh, after all my calculation with my criteria when it comes to uh, the MLS MVP, should come to no surprise that at, when you put it all into the, uh, the machine there with my help from my good friend uh, Paul Carr, uh, it, it pumps right back out and gives you Carlos Vela. He is hands down the MVP in terms of my, uh, my calculation, in terms of the number of games he's scored. Obviously, he made the playoffs. Uh, I don't count penalties. 
you, uh, it's not about the how many goals you score, but the amount of games that you score in, and you throw all of that in and immediately comes back to Carlos Vela. So congratulations to Carlos Vela on the MVP as far as, as, far as I'm concerned. Also, congratulations to LAFC for getting the most points in MLS history for a regular season. As I said before, nobody's going to care about that in terms of the supporter shield unless you go on and do things in MLS Cup. Uh, and we actually we have our playoff matchups right now. I can read them to you if you want. I, I was going to say, okay. uh, for all of Alex Dowd's faults, he would have printed out the matchups for us. Uh, his replacement did not do that. I have. So, uh, I'm just, <laughs> wow. Um, don't, don't make Emily cry but on you, the first day. But I'm you have it up there. So I have it let's up go through okay. it. I do want to get some predictions from you. Okay. Alex this week is probably going to have you fill out the whole bracket, but let's just stick to <laughs> opening round for, for the purposes of this podcast. Okay, so as we know, uh, the top seven teams in each conference make it. The top finisher... Uh, gets a buy. So on one side, as we mentioned, with the Supporters Shield, LAFC, they are a buy. They will not be playing in that first round, and neither will NYCFC on the other side. So in the Eastern uh, Conference, NYCFC gets the buy. It'll be Toronto against DC, which is a surprise that Toronto is hosting because DC had a very good year and faltered at the end, which means that with, uh, with Wayne Rooney, not playing next year, there's a possibility if Toronto don't go through that they will not play at home again. You will never see Wayne Rooney play uh, in D.C. again. We'll see how that goes. Uh, I, I predict that Toronto is going to beat D.C. Uh, and that will be it for D.C. and what could have been. And Wayne Rooney goes off to his adventure as player manager back in, uh, back in England. Second matchup, Philadelphia Union hosting the Red Bulls. Red Bulls for those that don't remember, because you don't, because it's the Supporters' Shield, winners of the Supporters' Shield and the most points in, uh, in, uh, in history last year have to go to Philadelphia. Uh, I think that Philadelphia finds a way to beat this Red Bulls team. I don't think that this Red Bulls team is good enough, and I think Philadelphia finds a way to go through as the home team there. Uh, I think Atlanta beats, and this is the final matchup, Atlanta hosting the New England Revolution. I think this is where uh, the train stops when it comes to Bruce Arena's ability to uh, deal with it. And we're not going to really judge Bruce until next year, but what he's already done is incredible even to get them to the playoffs here, but he's going to have a lot of changes going on next uh, next year. And I think Atlanta United beats, uh, beats the revolution. On the other side, as we mentioned, LAFC has the bye in a huge, huge surprise. Your loons, Minnesota United hosting Zlatan and the LA Galaxy. Zlatan and the LA Galaxy coming in to uh, Minnesota. I am going to pick the Loons beating LA Galaxy. Uh, the second game is uh, Real Salt Lake hosting Portland. I'm also going to pick the home team, Real Salt Lake beating Portland. And then uh, Seattle, which finished second, surprisingly, because I didn't think they were very good this year. And Dallas, which is good, bad, depends on what day you get them. Uh, Seattle is hosting FC Dallas. I, I, I feel like Dallas is going to win, but I'm not convicted enough to say uh, yes. But, okay, so Seattle is going to win. So there you go. All three home teams in the uh, Eastern Conference win, and the home field advantage stays true there. Uh, my only comment about the first round, I hope I'm wrong about this because I would love to see LAFC face the Galaxy. Uh, living out here in L.A., I'd probably yeah. go to that game. It would be incredible. But the Galaxy are such a tease to me. There's still people that are seduced by some of the names and one name in particular on that roster and think that once the playoffs come around, they're all of a sudden going to turn into this great team and they're super dangerous and a team you don't want to face and watch them get hot and win the whole thing. I have seen no indication in the last two years that they're capable, that I love Jovan. I hope I'm wrong. I'll be rooting for him. But – 
I mean, I, have you seen anything in the last two years that somehow it would convince you they're going to rip off a bunch of wins here against good opponents? No, defensively, they're, they're suspect. They are, are frail defensively. And as you mentioned, this is uh, Zlatan. And there's, look, there's other players, and, and Leggett and Alessandrini may or may not be back. Um, so there's plenty of talent when it comes to, to L.A. It's just I think it's a good collection of individuals. It's just not a good team. And maybe on a, on a team that features Laton, that's ultimately what you're going to say more often than not. What, what will be interesting to me is um, Eichel Parra, who is the center back for Minnesota, coming up against Zlatan. If there were, it was ever a moment for a, not an arguable, he is a wonderful center back to have a day against a, a legend, it is that day. And they paid a lot of money, and he is one and a big one of the reasons why the loons are in this position in the first place. So that's, uh, yeah, listen, I, I, w I want the Galaxy to win just from a TV perspective and what it means, but I think that the loons are going to find a way at home to go through. And last thing for me to bring it back to the Mossy makes the case, the Boca Juniors president has been running around saying that Zlatan is dying to play for Boca Juniors. Who knows how much truth there is to that, but you never know. This could be Zlatan's last game in MLS. It, it and could be. next season I could be doing Mossy makes the cases about Copa Lib and Zlatan could be a part of that. It so could be. Who knows? So, so I my picks, I think I have all the home teams winning. Uh, yeah, Toronto, Philadelphia, Atlanta, the Loons, Real Salt Lake and Seattle. That's it, right? Okay. Well, we'll see how that goes. Uh, and we don't know yet. We might have gotten some emails while we were recording this as to where we're going and, and what we're doing. But I will be on the road at a certain point uh, doing some of those games. I can't wait. I, I get excited about uh, MLS playoffs. I like playoffs, as you guys know, that, uh, that listen to the pod. Uh, anything else, Mossy? Uh, just last thing, shout out to the new Michigan offense. It's been absolutely thrilling to watch. I don't know, so we had a, <laughs> These are your Wolverines, uh, right? Your a, American football Wolverines we, right there. We had from, a 10-3 uh, uh, win over Iowa. 10-3? Yes. Wow. Wow. So win's a win. I know, win's a win. Is Harbaugh still the, the coach over there? Uh, yes. For the foreseeable future? <laughs> he's, he's like Pochettino, right? He's, uh, yes. That's uh, generous. To <laughs> Would Harbaugh. you rather have Pochettino than Harbaugh at this at this point coaching your? Uh, well, your Bayern Wolverines. Munich against Tottenham almost scored more than That's true. Michigan did against. That Harbaugh. is true. Who do, who do you play this weekend? Who do your uh, your Wolverines play this weekend? Uh, Illinois. That's easy, right? You yeah, we should win that. It's kind of like Rutgers, right? Right. Okay. Well, we're here for you when it comes to Rutgers, and evidently Illinois is here for you too. All right, uh, we come to the end of uh, of a pod, and as you know, at the end of each pod, uh, we do our one big thing. Uh, this week, it is a uh, former teammate of mine in uh, Hugo Perez. You may know him. Wonderful player. Was older than me, but I played on the national team with him, played in the 1994 World Cup. He uh, is a, a former international. Well, he's still an international, but he's a former player and also a former uh, coach for the United States Soccer Federation for, uh, for youth teams. Uh, he stopped doing that a, a few uh, years ago. Was just named uh, by the uh, Mexican Federation as a coach and scout here in the United States, and in particular in, in our area of the country, to identify uh, and scout and foster young um, dual nationals and obviously Mexican-Americans for the potential of playing on the Mexican national team. Uh, this news comes out to the consternation, once again, of the American soccer community for, for what it means, what it represents. First and foremost, <clears throat> uh, Hugo Perez has no obligation to 
the United States Soccer Federation or to, or to U.S. Soccer. Uh, he has an obligation to him and his family to be employed. This is a great opportunity for him. I, I wish him luck. And I know when you say that, people are, well, why do you wish him luck? Because he's basically working against the U.S. national team. It's okay. There's, there's, there's plenty of room for all. Uh, and there's plenty of talent out there. And I know that people are using this as, a, um, as an indication of the problems or the ineptitude when it comes to U.S. soccer in terms of harnessing, har identifying and harnessing the incredible um, talent that exists, and in particular the uh, Hispanic and Latino talent that we have in the United States and recognizing uh, how, to get to that, uh, how to get to that talent. Uh, if you want to use this as an indication to further your, uh, your argument or, in many cases, your agenda, have at it. Uh, go. I, I don't think that this is uh, or should be used as an indication that the United States Soccer Federation or we in the United States aren't doing things. Can we do more? Absolutely. Do we need to do more? Absolutely. But I think that this is an indication of the... Uh, Mexican Federation, as they have for a number of years now, recognizing the incredible talent that we, uh, that we have and doing what they need to do to try to go after that talent. It's okay. It's not the end of the world. And uh, once again, I don't think that this should be used as, uh, as an example of what we are not doing well. It, uh, but it also doesn't mean that we aren't doing things uh, we don't need to do things, uh, they do things better. I wish Ugo well uh, in this. And at times it will mean that we are fighting, if you will, for some of the same talent out there. And we will win some and we will lose some. But I think everybody can agree we want to be in that fight. And where at times it gets uh, problematic is where we lose a player and we weren't in that fight. But I will just caution you that we can't fight every single battle. We want to be able to cover a country like the United States, and it's very, very difficult to do that. And this is a longer conversation, but I know when that news came out, it raised a lot of eyebrows uh, out there, and it caused a lot of uh, people to once again examine or re-examine who we are and what we are, what we are doing. This is, this is going to be good for him. It may indeed be good for the, uh, for the Mexican Federation, but I don't think it's going to necessarily be good at the expense of the United States Soccer Federation. But in no way do I mean to uh, imply that uh, the United States Soccer Federation can't and doesn't need to do a better job. Uh, and I believe, uh, I believe that they will. And if this, is a, if this is used as something to push us to do more, great. But um, once again, I just wanted to mention that because it was news over the, uh, over the last week and there were a lot of think pieces out there about what it means or what it, uh, or what it, uh, or what it doesn't mean. So, all right, Mossy, anything else before we head off? That is it. All right, we live in interesting times, my friend. Uh, your Michigan uh, team continues on. We got all sorts of soccer. We are now in uh, the international break. So our U.S. team is back at it. We will be uh, covering those games. As Mossy mentioned, I will be in... D.C. for U.S. versus the almighty power that is 
Cuba uh, and the Burhalter experiment continues along and we'll see how that ultimately plays out. Don't forget to use that hashtag Ask Alexi out there if you're sending us questions and comments. Don't forget to download the podcast. Thank you so much for those of you that uh, do download it and subscribe to it and review it and rate it and do all of those things on all the different platforms that we have out there. Uh, it means so much to us that you are participating and being part of this. It is, uh, is something that we love to do and the fact that there are so many of you out there that, uh, that, that enjoy it, it warms the cockles of our hearts. Uh, anything else, Mossy? Nope. All right, size the day.